Hi, I'm Sonia Jean Killebrew, and this is Black America and COVID, an oral history project. I started this project during Black History Month of 2022 because I wanted to provide a platform for Black Americans to share their stories about living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. I also wanted to provide a space for people to memorialize someone who is a Black American who sadly lost their life during the COVID-19 pandemic. I was inspired by the work of Zora Neale Hurston, author and anthropologist, to record the experiences of Black Americans in their own voices. My goal is to get my recordings into museums, such as the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, or the Schomburg. So without further ado, I'm excited to speak with my guest today. Uh, I'm uh, Ray Walker. Um, I had the pleasure to serve as founding director of New York City's first urban boarding school for young men in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm not a Brooklynite. I am a, a proud Bronx baby and my family and lineage. Um, uh, I've recently done the, you know, 23andMe type of um, ancestry um, uh, DNA based background check uh, mm -hmm. on myself and was, you know, proud to find that it reinforced a lot of what I understood anecdotally, which is that uh, on my father's side, um, there's quite a mixture, um, including a family that were uh, brought to America originally as slaves or to the West Indies. And um, they are, their roots trace, you know, all the way back to Africa. There were countries like Benin, Togo and such. Um, I, on my mother's side, um, my Nana, my great grandmother, I knew that she was from Jamaica anecdotally, had moved to Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance and lived in Lenox Terrace on like near 125th. And um, her husband was a milliner um, and made hats. So I remember as a child, you know, she was the Nana who would let me come and go through all of her drawers with all of her trinkets and her closets. And there were all these hat boxes with the fanciest fascinators and hats that you could uh, possibly imagine. And it was because her husband, when he was alive, had been, uh, you know, a black um, business owner and milliner, you know, a, a hat artisan. Um, tracing uh, that family lineage back, uh, it's where a lot of my family are light-skinned. And then some of them are actually, you know, uh, totally dark-skinned and you would never know that you know, looking at us that we were related, but I've seen the photo albums um, when I was a child, for instance. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that I have family who are also, uh, my last name, Walker, who are also um, of, you know, like uh, Irish or Scottish descent and European as well. Um, on my father's side, dovetailing back to that, there's an interesting story. Um, he did the genealogy uh, sort of activity as it relates to a lot of the paperwork that you can find on the historical record. I think that was through um, Ancestry. And what he found was that because our um, slave owner was in the military, that the records were immaculately kept. So as a result on my father's side, we know the plantation where we were and where 
our lineage emerged from. And it was actually the plantation that was uh, uh, Tara was from, I believe it's uh, Gone With The Wind was based on. So it's the, the real plantation, um, not the fictional named uh, uh, variant. And that's again, because this um, you know military, uh, higher level, higher ranking individual, every slave that he owned had to be tracked properly because of his you know, military um, status. So those records were there and he, he did an awesome um, like genealogy pitch at our family reunion on, on his side of the family. Um, I wasn't raised, I didn't become close to my father until um, probably I was in my thirties because my mom was a single mom who raised me. Um, I was uh, conceived when she was 15 and born when she was 16. So um, growing up uh, adjacent to, and then in Edenwall projects, and then in other areas of the Bronx, we were sort of nomadic. I think I mentioned that to you uh, earlier. And as it stands today, we just moved around a lot, always looking for a better rent or like a more affordable rent, a better quality of life, or a better school in which I could be sort of living in proximity to in New York back in the day, you had to go to your zone school. Um, and, you know, we had some good financial times and some tough financial times, uh, me and my mom, who's been the constant in my life. Um, so sometimes uh, I was going to like a Catholic school or Montessori school, I think was one of my first schools because we had a little bit of bread, the money was all right. And then during other times, um, my mom would uh, find a friend who lived near a good school and we would literally like do the hustle, use their address, and I would take a, a you know, 45 minute bus ride or whatever it took to get to a school because my zone school was a place where, you know, my mom was fearful to send me mm-hmm. and where the academics were not strong to say the least, but it was more like literally like safety, like get off the block type of stuff in some of the neighborhoods in the Bronx that, um, you know, I grew up in. So, you know, the, the question where I'm from being, um, uh, you know, someone who's always identified as like multi-ethnic, multi-racial, um, non-Latino, um, although my children are uh, part Latino, all three of them, um, I myself, you know, I've always had a sense that there was a lot of uh, DNA going on in there, a lot of beautiful things. And what it always resulted in, in my like growing up an upbringing and the way I looked at the world was it meant good food, diverse styles of love and of, um, and of care and concern for me. Um, as it stands today, like my father's side is pretty deep um, in his thirties, instead of blaming my mom for the uh, estrangement, he finally said, you know, I have six daughters and I have my um, son and Simply put, I did not do right by my son. And then when he finally was able to say that, instead of trying to blame my mom, I was finally able to go, okay, all right, I'll hear what you're talking about. And, um, you know, I really just wanted him to be at that point in time, a good grandfather, right? Like, I'm like, I'm okay, I'm doing all right. Um, And and I'm in a place where now I can um, forgive you and move toward love and move toward understanding of his um, experience as a black American, um, African American as, as his, he and his father would probably call themselves because they also were 
from the Bronx at the time when I was born, but they had gotten chased out of Georgia. So after being on the plantation, his family themselves were sort of displaced. They had a, a, a convenience store, a corner store, package store down in Georgia, and they were thriving and doing really well. And then one day, um, because of interracial marriage, as I understand it to be the case, they basically said, if you don't get out of town, your store and your house will likely not be here in the morning. Hmm. So they um, had to take whatever they could and go to the Bronx. And my grandfather on my father's side did open up a bodega that like had been right um, over by Edenwall Projects. And I like remember where the store is to this day. Like I know the block, like right there on Laconia, like whatever the avenue is. <laughs> like I like a picture going there as a kid. So, um, you know, my the the question, you know, who are you or where are you from, was never as simple as it is for someone who goes, um, you know, in in uh, in the case of uh, two of my children's mom, they go, I'm from Dominican Republic. In the case of my son, Logan's mom, I'm Cuban and I'm Ecuadorian, like straight cut and dry. For me, that DNA chart is really extensive. And more recently, um, even these folks are finding out how extensive their own is when they do the genealogy or the, the DNA tracing. So my partner in life, she did hers and she finds that she also has family from Africa and that it's mixed into that uh, Latino diaspora that's again beautiful right beautiful food beautiful culture something that we should all be embracing so i hope that uh, uh was a good answer to the question yeah i love hearing about your ancestry and right the with the diaspora and i like hearing that it's it's not just a simply saying my mom is from here my dad's from here like and hearing about the ancestry in Georgia, like I've been to Tara Boulevard. I used to live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I I drove by Tara Boulevard. Wow! And I haven't. And just one little asterisk here is that everything I've disclosed is factual to the best of my ability in storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I listened to my father as he did his presentation um, for like a ton of family members on his side of the family. And I've done my best to, you know, sort of retell the story. Um, but yeah, yo, I mean, based on, you know, paperwork and fact, and it, you know, for him, it's a real pride point. Um, for me, because I, I didn't grow up with that side of the family, um, you know, I just realized the sort of almost like tragic, but beautiful nature of it all. Um, you know, there's a lot of sadness there, but there's a lot of song and storytelling and sitting on the porch playing the dozens. I've seen the photos, you know, like I've seen the photos of these folks. Um, sadly, none of my photo albums are really around. Um, we had a flood um, uh, when I was in high school um, in the basement that ruined like many of the photo albums that we used to keep under the table. And I think that's probably why I actually like social media so much because it's like the modern version of your like the, the um, the books and the, the photo albums that we used to keep under the coffee table that we would show visitors when they came. So you could see uh, the ancestry and, um, you know, how the kids have grown or a report card. And um, now we do that, I think, through social media. So this uh, pod, uh, podcast or this type of tool or vehicle for storytelling is, is, is pretty beautiful um, to me. 
I like to share how I know the people who I'm interviewing. So you and I, we both went to boarding school and we both, well, I went through prep nine. I don't know if you went through prep nine. Yes, I did. So I was prep nine's contingent one. Um, and that's a, a pride point. We were the first group that um, as a cohort, we're all slated to go to these highly selective independent boarding schools, whereas our predecessors mainly went to um, highly selective independent day schools. And um, there were a few who went to boarding school, various um, uh, schools, but then this became a new model or a new um, facet that Prep for Prep was offering. And my mother got me into the application process there and it didn't take too much convincing. Like I really wanted to go there. Um, when I graduated from the preparatory component, a great mentor, Peter Bordenaro, told me that I told him I was going to come back and serve as an advisor. And sure enough, the summer after my sophomore year in high school, um, I went back and worked for the program for three straight summers as a teaching assistant and what they call an advisor, which basically holds a, a sort of a group discussion and therapy session almost even at a young age of facilitation, you have a meeting with the clinical director of the program who helps you communicate and articulate to the um, students who are about to matriculate at these challenging spaces, these um, traditionally elite boarding schools. And you sort of work through some of the issues. You have some fun, but you, you really try to help them talk through and understand some of the issues they're gonna face when they get to these spaces. And so my advisor group, as you may remember, like my last summer there overlapped with your first, um, you know, would have been a group of uh, between 11 and 12 year old, mostly on average, um, you know, black, Latino students, first generation European immigrant students uh, and Asian students who are in the prep for prep, um, what they call the preparatory component mm -hmm. of the prep for prep program. So yes, that. That's indeed our um, our overlapping um, uh, you know point there. That's amazing. You reminded me of that um, that you went to Deerfield and then Georgetown, and now you have this amazing nonprofit that we'll get to hear about. So I love asking people to just tell me your story starting in 2020, the beginning of 2020. Some people like to start the end of 2019 and just your life before the pandemic started and then as the city started to shut down and then what your life became as the virus is spreading. So I, I might have to go back a little bit further um, just to contextualize uh, some of the work that I do, which is not in really a quantifiable or known space. It's not mm -hmm. like I'm a charter school leader and people can wrap their minds around what that concept is. I'm building urban boarding schools, which are, um, in a sense, in the image of that uh, highly selective independent environment that I described, that elite boarding school. Yeah. But instead of taking um, students from um, urban areas and from under-resourced school communities, and getting them to a residential program at a elite school, I'm trying to bring the elite residential program directly to the hood. That's the elevator pitch and the easiest way that I can encapsulate it in the vernacular, right? Like I wanna um, bring a dormitory model, like the one that I founded in 04, designed and implemented all the intellectual properties um, for a nonprofit that had hired me uh, to build a, 
uh, dorm environment that was adjacent to Bishop Lockwood High School, right on the corner of Claremont and Green, right down by the Barclays Center, um, and, and allow students to participate in a five-day residential model, mostly, most cases, where they go home on the weekends. So that keeps them connected to their families or their primary supports, um, their community, uh, allows them to do, we do groups, community service projects. There's a whole framework and culture of um, what these students experience. And it's founded on what I experienced at Deerfield Academy, which were sit down meals, meaning family style meals, um, having proctors, which are seniors who come around and make sure you're doing your homework during two hours of required study hall. And so if you take any student and you give them, they were like, doing 15 minutes of homework, half an hour of homework, and now they have two hours of structured study, um, anyone can sort of gather what's going to happen longitudinally with their grades. It's probably going to go up. We don't know too much or we can't say too much, but we know that they'll probably make some strides academically going from fending for themselves at home, at the kitchen table, maybe going to sleep to the sound of gunshots or whatever they're dealing with in their community, mm -hmm. some dealing with food insecurity, to now they've got caring staff, a nurturing environment and a culture of the highest expectations. So I ran that program, um, designed all the, the relevant materials and have some now adult professional alumni, which are my pride point and some great data. And I'm trying to replicate that model. So that takes you all the way back. But then, you know, it, it, I try to endeavor um, to replicate this model nationwide starting in 2011. And essentially for the next six years on a part-time basis while raising two beautiful children who are right now excellent students in their own right. Um, mm -hmm. They do live with uh, um, their mom, but they um, are thriving. My daughter is a sophomore at NYU and she's currently in uh, Prague. And, um, you know, with it being taken as a grain of salt because she and I are somewhat estranged, um, I am just thankful that she is thriving. Um, my son is 14 years old and deciding where he wants to go to high school. You know, he's a 90 something student who for most of his life had uh, a, a speech delay and speech therapy in place with an IEP at his um, public school. But, you know, he was able to persevere and, and remain resilient and eventually didn't require an IEP. He's not as talkative as his dad and may not do a podcast, you know, about his experience with COVID, but he is um, genuine. Um, he is himself and he is creative and passionate about the things that he loves. Yeah. Much different from his dad. So, um, and I have a three-year-old child, which I'll, I'll probably get to because that's part of the pandemic story. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would, these kids were born in my urban boarding school program, mm -hmm. um, they got to see and experience um, uh, life around the students, just like faculty uh, residents in the traditional boarding school environment. Okay. Um, these kids grow up sort of around the dorm and the, the kids in the dorm students grow up around the faculty children, right? So okay. that was a, a, great, a great experience. Now, 2011, I'm trying to rinse, wash and repeat. How do I replicate this model nationwide? And I basically, for the next six years, just got my butt kicked as a fledgling foundation and a nonprofit um, leader. Um, it was essentially um, Stokes Foundation in honor of my 
best friend who passed away uh, during my junior year in high school. Mm. Um, tragically at you know Deerfield Academy, um, he drowned in the river there. But um, you know, while the foundation's in his honor, during those years, it's probably to other people felt like it was the Ray Foundation. Like it's just me trying to be outward facing and ask people for help. But I was having a lot of conversations and not having a lot of traction, um, especially with people like with high net worth who could really move the needle because I was afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the Bronx boy and the chip on my shoulder, uh, maybe something about just being prideful and not wanting to ask um, wealthy and mostly white friends, but you know some friends of color as well for money um, and really realizing that you know it's not like humming and bumming. You're like, you're providing a service. You're connecting people who may want to do something meaningful or give back to the community to that opportunity. And I had to go back um, uh, around 2016, 2017, double back to take a step forward. So I went to go work in two pro shops uh, in, as far as fundraising goes that are as good as there are on the planet. At Deerfield Academy, my alma mater, which is almost like fishing with dynamite. So I went into the advancement office at Deerfield and got to be around professionals and mentors who could teach me how to be a better fundraiser and how to professionalize what I had been doing with Stokes Foundation and like stumbling in the dark. I had to learn sort of the craft behind it. And so these wonderful mentors literally knew what my end game was and gave me some time to work there. I think I promised them I would stay at least two years and I wound up staying like, you know, like almost to being vested, which I think takes, um, you know, three years or four years in that in that space. And I loved it. I almost got like what you might consider too comfortable. And in my belief system, sometimes God gives you a nudge um, when he needs you to step up. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I didn't really mention previously, but I. Um, I do identify as someone who um, comes from a faith-based faith -based belief system. Um, you know, I believe in God and a higher power greater than myself, um, but I have trouble and difficulty with church. Um, however, I've gone to Baptist church um, and love the music. I love gospel. Um, I have worked at uh, at least two Catholic institutions and I'm comfortable in my own skin as a lay staff within their community, because while, you know, sometimes I think in recent publicity, they get a bad rap. There are a lot of people who are really about youth service and who are really about protecting the least and the last in Catholic spaces. So I try to take the good from what uh, these institutions have um, and understand that we've all got things that we're not proud of, you know, in terms of, you know, any cultural institution, they often have dark moments. So, um, you know, I tend to think about what they could do for children as a strategic partner, mm -hmm. rather than, and, and hold the individuals accountable who would do harm. Mm -hmm. Those individuals need to be judged. And in my belief system, God will be the judge of that, not, not me as a man. So, um, they certainly shouldn't be, you know, working with children if they've done some harm. But there are a lot of people who are like literally like youth development mentors to me in that space. And I like would trust them with my own children. And wow. So, um, 
so yeah so you know to dovetail like my faith and how it like plays in into all of this um you know i believe that sometimes you know when you're getting too comfortable and there's work to be done sometimes you're not realizing it but you get a nudge and um in this case i probably would have stayed at deerfield way beyond you know two to you know four years um because of the lifestyle and I, it wasn't because I was making a lot of money. It was just comfortable. And um, my partner, who actually is someone who I um, met through Prep for Prep um, and who serves on their senior leadership team, um, Cindy Perez, is just um, a remarkable individual. And when we found out that she was with child, um, I didn't hesitate to say, it's time for me to come back to New York. Um, not only was it just a financial decision because as senior leadership, she's making three times my salary or whatever it was. Um, it was just like, you know, I'm coming back home. And I found a job at Cardinal Hayes high school in my native Bronx. Cardinal Hayes is a Catholic institution, much like Bishop Lachlan and also like Bishop Lachlan, which is co-ed Cardinal Hayes serves predominantly a community of black and Brown boys. Mm -hmm. And um, and now they have a fair amount of Latino and Asian students, whereas historically that school was predominantly Irish and Italian. So as the Bronx evolved, so did Cardinal Hayes. And I had an experience there that um, that led into the pandemic. So now we get to where I could like literally start to articulate about, you know, the experience of coming back to New York City um, in September right before we knew it was about to hit us, so to speak. Um, so that's September, October, and into November, um, I was hired by a, a beautiful man named um, Tom Fike, who believed in me and brought me in as their director of alumni engagement, um, major, mainly to do major gifts and, and some leadership gifts work. Um, and then he wound up himself pre-pandemic going into higher ed. So he left me the keys to a shop, a development office, and I had to figure it out on the fly, like drink from a fire hose for a few weeks where I'm getting like vendors and passcodes and like information that I was not previously privy to. And my main job was to support the school president. Um, we did our best and like I was enjoying the experience of learning how to be a director of development, even on an interim basis. Mm -hmm. And in that schools, um, uh, you know, alumni network, you were dealing with people like Regis Philbin. So they aren't quite like Deerfield in terms of their um, endowment or their annual um, giving, but they do fairly well relative to Catholic schools in New York City. And it's a well-renowned institution with a proud tradition where the alumni call themselves Hazemen, and it actually really means something to them. Whether they're Black, Italian, Irish, Latino, they are Hazemen. And that, uh, you know, again, when I tend to work somewhere, um, as you can see, like, I um, wave the flag. And when it's Deerfield, I'll wear Deerfield. When it's Cardinal Hayes, I will wear Cardinal Hayes on my chest. And so um, I met a, a, a multitude of great Hazemen there who even now to this day are helping me with Stokes Foundation. I'll, I'll get to that maybe a little bit when, when I talk about later on in the pandemic uh, and my pivot back to foundation work. Um, but 
I'm trying to contextualize the timing. So we've got the holidays there. Um, it's the end of 2019. Uh, yeah, I, I believe so. And I'm getting ready in December, expecting a child in January. Mm-hmm. And again, this is my third child. You know, I'm in my 40s at the time. And I thought I was done with my first two children. And then, you know, it's that saying, you know, I try to get out, but they pulled me back in. And, and into fatherhood, you know, diaper changing and all. So I was gearing up and getting my mind ready for that. Um, I was working, you know, during the holiday season. It's a big thing in, in f- fundraising. Like you're trying to, um, you know, uh, do a, a winter sort of campaign so you can help donors close out their fiscal year, even if it's not your institution's fiscal year end. Um, so I'm working with Father Tierney. We're getting ready to, um, he's the school president. We're getting ready to travel in the spring. And we're talking about, you know, going and making the rounds and going to see people. Um, January comes, I take paternity leave and Logan, um, my third child is born. Um, and, you know, Cindy and I, um, we had a, a baby shower of our own. Um, Peter and Katie Bordenauer from Prep for Prep were there. There were Prep for Prep staff there, like Charles Guerrero and others. Like it just like they came out um, to eat with us and and sit with us and be with us, and and let Cindy be the center of attention during the baby shower. There was another one at Prep for Prep, and that org's culture for like baby showers for staff is they see your child's bookcase, which I think is a beautiful tradition. And so they give you a, a, like a, a litany of books as gifts. And it basically is the foundation of that first bookcase for this child. And so we were well supported. Um, you know, January, I think there were news reports coming through of what was going on elsewhere, whether mm-hmm. in China or, you know, abroad. And, you know, um, Cindy was paying attention to that. And, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't really foresee um, what was about what we were all about to experience collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wow, I, I can't, I remember the emotions of watching news reports more than I remember the exact days because they all sort of became this like, almost like, you know, like an amalgam and just an ex- a hybrid experience of what we were going through day to day. When I found out that, you know, I was going into work um, I had a cough, um, and, you know, they immediately sent me home from work and were, you know, like, were like, Oh, you know, he might have COVID or whatever. And I'm like, I don't think so. Like the symptoms aren't really matching, but in a bunch abundance of precaution, like I'm happy to, I had gone to see the nurse at Cardinal Hayes high school. And she was like, yeah, this doesn't seem like what we're knowing as COVID, but yes, so you don't freak other people out. Like, yeah, you should work from home. Like just go work from home. Right. So um, I even left stuff at my desk and I know Cindy too had like left stuff at her desk expecting to be there and come right back or like just after a few days. And I was then working from home um, for Cardinal Hayes with father Tierney. A lot of projects that we had were sort of like put on hold and the question was arise, like, you know, arose, like, do we still fundraise? Like people are dying. Like it was really um, rapid in terms of how it went from something that was um, a cause for concern 
or something that seemed just like any other, like, you know, bird flu or anything that had come before there, like SARS, other um, types of, uh, you know, potential pandemic illnesses to where it was like, um, you know, there were refrigerated trailers across the street from our house because there were more deceased people in like Columbia Presbyterian than could be accommodated um, in the city morgue or wherever else. Um, and I, well, I remember some of the tough times and like where the streets just seemed eerie and quiet and almost like something from a post-apocalyptic movie when you would like venture out to go get basic necessities. Um, you know, I remember those feelings. And then I also remember hearing the sound every day when pots and pans and bells would be ringing, you know, for the first responders headed right to the hospital across the street from us. Um, we were in uh, Inwood, Manhattan, um, which I might've forgotten to mention when I came back from Deerfield Academy to live back in New York. We found a one bedroom in, in um, right uh, near Riverdale um, section of the Bronx, which is still the no very Northern tip of Manhattan. Um, the beauty of this time in my life was that my son's school was two blocks away, my middle child. So as his baby brother was being born, I got to at least be like closer to him. But it was weird because we had to, um, you know, quarantine households, so to speak. Even though he lived two blocks away, I could barely see him, you know. So you know, it's like my son was within reach, <laughs> you know, and it's like, and then, you know, we started to learn that we could have some precautions in place and test each, you know, test ourselves. And so we did get to spend some quality time together before the pandemic um, led Cindy and I to be the unique opportunity of being first time homeowners and coming up to Marlboro, New York, and just deciding, you know, we wanted to get the hell out of Dodge and not be in the chaos of New York City, even outside of the pandemic, but particularly given the pandemic. And if you remember the interest rates were really um, advantageous and the market hadn't been dried up yet. Like it was still like where you could find a house, but they were, you had to get your bids in quick um, or make a formal offer because um, someone was gonna make a cash offer or like an immediate um, high bid offer on a property. And so we, we found just the right match for us. Um, and it's always been maybe part of growing up in the Bronx. And I mentioned being nomadic, my wish to be able to put like grass under my kids' feet or at least have the space there where if they want to come up and barbecue, like we could do that. If they want to come up and have a room, I have a room for them. And so that was just supremely important to me. And my partner in life said, I support that. They are not my children, but we have a place for them mm -hmm. in addition to our own son. So um, I picked a good one in Cindy Perez, who was your post-placement yeah, counselor at Prepper Prep. I like Cindy. Um, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, you know, I'm, I'm in a, almost a second life, you know, um, and uniquely blessed. But, um, you know, pandemic was pretty interesting. Um, as we got a little bit more safe, the school itself, and I, I mean, I feel like 
I didn't do a terrible job there. Um, I encourage them to continue to raise funds and realize that the fact that now students need technology and maybe some of them don't have laptops and um, uh, you know they'll need maybe a wireless access point, Wi-Fi access point. I'm like, these are funding opportunities and, and charitable giving opportunities for your Hazeman, for our donors. I'm like, we still make the ask. We still need Father Tierney out there and going to get it. Like, no, we should not put our tail between our legs and stop asking people for funding. And I evidenced the economic downturn. People still gave through that challenging time. You don't just stop and pack up shop if you're doing fundraising. And so um, again, you know, we, we put our best foot forward. Some projects got put on hold that I have been working on. All the travel got put on hold, which you have to sometimes go see people to really effectively raise gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point in time, they decided to let the school president like get go, so to speak, but basically get reassigned to another parish. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, I was terminated as well with sort of, you know, like in with the wash. Um, it was the first point in my life when I had any type of um, severance. So we um, we made it work as a family, you know, and, um, you know, Cindy was also working remote with prep. They were trying to figure out what their conventions would be for um, how they would get back to a you know part time um, in-person workplace with the type of technology that are at our disposal and other things that we can do with testing. So everyone's making these pivots and like, and I learned skills like, you know, this Zoom and Google Meet, we've had this technology around for quite a, you know, years, if not like two decades, it's been around, but dating back to Skype and just no one was leveraging it for like meetings and for like remote work. And so like learning these skills, I think humanity just got kind of like a chin check where someone said like, listen, you know, you all need to adapt, improvise and overcome. Learn some new skills. And so like, I I don't think we would have been as agile minded as we are now um, uh, had we not gone through this experience. And I know I certainly wouldn't have been. And so now um, I was without a job trying to figure things out. Um, I learned that I was, not going to have a job like a week after we closed on the house. <laughs> so <laughs> that just was not a good, um, a good look right there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, um, it felt terrible, like considering the fact that, you know, like I didn't even get to show what I was built of because we're dealing with like a pandemic, like, and in fact, i kind of feel like I didn't do too bad, you know? So um I, I then realized at some point in time, all the skills that I had picked up as an interim director of development and another nudge had come from my higher power in my belief system, which is basically saying, well, you probably could have stayed there for a while, but I've got something for you to do, or you have a mission or you have a calling. And I decided to go back full time to Stokes Foundation in 2022 um, and build urban boarding schools nationwide. Um, specifically for students um, that we would say, uh, we would say that for these particular students, dorm life is not a luxury, but a necessity Mm -hmm. um, and an urgent one that we're not addressing comprehensively in the United States. 
Um, so if you think of human hierarchical needs, if oh. students don't have their food insecurity addressed, um, or they're getting their ass beat at home, or they're um, you know dealing with substance abuse or opioid abuse in the home, or uh, in their vicinity, um, verbal abuse, you know, shelter from harm is in that most basic need. Mm -hmm. So if they're dealing with things along those lines, and there's a litany of other um, environmental concerns that could be in place, um, going to sleep to the sound of gunshots, as I did when I was a kid, mm -hmm. is not conducive to study and focus and proper behavior in school and realizing that the world can be a good place if we make it one. So as a result, you know, you're living in this state of trauma. And um, when you can finally take a student and get them beyond that, then they can start to focus on the mid-tier of hierarchical um, uh, development, human development, and just like tread water. Now, then when we get to the top of the pyramid, now we're talking about service, mm -hmm. tutoring, uh, imparting wisdom on the next person and mentoring a younger student or thinking about civic engagement, global citizenship. Like that's at the very elite, like, you know, like precipice of where you would go. And if you don't have the basic, um, you know, foundation taken care of, I don't care how much, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or Oprah throws at your school to solve a problem for that particular cross-section of students, they will never be able to tap into those resources other than just the most resilient among them. And even mm -hmm. for them, it's an uphill battle. So what Stokes Foundation looks to do is not, um, you know, look for the cream of the crop of the students in New York City the way Prep for Prep did in recruiting you and I. We're looking for students where their referral sources, their teachers, their, um, you know, primary supports, people who help them complete the application are indicating hey, I know this is a 68 student right now, but if they didn't, if they had a dorm and two hours of study hall, this is like a 80 student or a 90 student in disguise. Mm -hmm. Or it's instant leadership, just add water. They just simply, in some cases, an educator or a teacher would say, I don't know exactly what's going on at home, but I know this child needs to not be at home <laughs> in order to properly thrive and tap into the great mentors that might be already in place at their school. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Stokes Foundation essentially catalyzes the investments that other philanthropic organizations are already making in education. There are yeah. enough people out there building new ed frameworks and building new schools with wonderful, brilliant leaders. But for, you know, a certain cross-section of their student population in any school or in any geography, this cross-section of students, they, they just can't access it. They're resistant to it for whatever reason. And um, we let those referral sources sort of guide us and the applications themselves from the student show us where their core resiliencies are because we're looking for students with a balance of risk and resiliency. Mm -hmm. Risk meaning they need the program. It's not a luxury. Resiliency in, meaning they can likely survive. I mean, it's not easy to have two hours of study hall a night until you become like a senior and develop your own habits. And then you're a proctor and you got to like walk around study hall and help the other kid, you know, stay on task. No, please put the phone away. It's not that time and a place for everything. No, you can't play video games right now. If you go to the computer lab, you're not on Facebook. 
or messenger, you're focused on, you're there to do a paper or like do some research. Um, and you're not using chat GPT to like automatically like do your paperwork for you. So to have people around them to sort of show them the right way, um, it is just invaluable. And um, there's uh, interviews on our YouTube channel where my now adult alums are talking about, you know, just um, the impact it had on their, their lives. Mm-hmm. And and that prior, in some cases, prior to a program like this, they just didn't know that it was okay to be smart. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the type of role models in the hood that were telling them, you know, you're kind of bright, like like you're that's okay, like you, you don't have to um, do the bare minimum. Um, and so when they finally learned that these things were not only acceptable but could be like you know positively reinforced and rewarded, you know they you know sometimes it'll take two years, but then by junior year, they're like, you know, we have GPA increases of, you know, 20 grade average points, right? Like we're going from a 70 student to a 96 in one case, perpetual languishing 70. And the young man's um, name is O'Shane Davis. Uh, You know, he's on our YouTube. He talks about um, earning the Ujima scholarship at Northeastern University, which is a cohort based five-year scholarship and he was like, when I got there, I was already living in, in the dorm with, you know, peers and everything else. He was like, I, I was ready. And I and then after going from a 70 student to a 96.8 and then graduating, one of the top like six students in his class at Bishop Lachlan, how he then kept his trajectory at Northeastern. And, um, you know, there's other anecdotal stories that, that these young folks tell better than I can, right? Like, cause I'm, I'm the, I was the program director. So, you know, you, you're hearing it one way from me, but when they anecdotally and sort of colloquially just talk about the experience, it's, it's pretty unique. But um, so I got pushed back, at, you know, by losing a job, I got sort of pushed back um, probably where I, right where I need to be. And having had the experience um, both pre-pandemic at, you know, going back in Deerfield Development Office, and then during the pandemic, you know, sort of like, you know, baptism by fire, um, I learned a lot about um, pivoting, agility of thought, fundraising, uh, crisis, um, and perseverance, you know, the type of things that I'm trying to reinforce with students um, on a national level at some point. Um, essentially, there was a time when no one could tell you what a charter school was. I remember there were... Um, uh, alternative schools in New York City, and there were alternative school leaders. Um, eventually, Kip and some other brands came on pretty strong, Success Academy and others, and they wound up building their brands up such that now people could articulate what a charter school is. Right. I'm hoping that my work with Stokes will do the same for um, urban boarding schools in their various models. There are different, um, you know, there are partnership models like ours where we build urban school boarding school programs. And then there's seed foundations, which, which seed foundation, which builds entire campuses soup to nuts, including a school. So oh. there should just be more. I, I think that's the simplest way I would say it that might resonate um, with you is there are so many kids who have this type of pressing human hierarchical need that needs to be addressed. There should just be more residential offerings nationwide. And I'm hoping that Stokes will, will help out in furtherance of that. So in part, the pandemic, like literally just said, Ray, it's time to 
get on the horse and go do your job. This is, I'm fairly committed that this is the job that I will either retire from or I'll pass away um, doing it when my energy is done on this planet. Wow, you're such a great storyteller. Thank you. No, I'm just, I'm just trying. And I've seen the other folks who've contributed to this project um, or listened to some of them and the bar was set pretty high. Oh. Um, you know, I just try to lead with love and, and speak from, you know, the heart um, to the best of my ability. I'm happy to, you know, um, if anything I mentioned brought about like specific questions from within the middle of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, I'm more than happy to. I did have, yeah, I did have one question about what was the process like buying a home? Were you allowed to go in person and see the home or were, you, were families allowed in one at a time? What was that like? Uh, so very good, good question. Um, and most of the interactions were remote, as you can imagine, or could be handled digitally and, you know, whatever. But um, what our uh, agent did, as well as the various agents that we had to deal with who might be showing the properties, um, everyone was either like masked up, socially distanced, or it was indeed one family at a time able to look at a property um, and then, you know, you would even, I mean, you know, during that time, Cindy and I were sanitizing what would come through the door. Um, even if it was like a food de delivery of some type mm -hmm. or a package that came from the postal service. So you have to, you know, just to remember what we were going through. And, and it's, it's great that you're letting me and reminding me to articulate it. But, you know, there was so much uncertainty that when we would go to these places, like we were like putting, you know, stuff on our feet, like, you know, it's like making sure not only that we're not leaving, um, you know, uh, traces where we to be um, carrying COVID or even just like a carrying transmitter of, of COVID without or asymptomatic, I believe is the way to describe it. Yeah. We could be carrying it and get someone else sick. Like that was a big time fear of mine. Um, and yeah, so we were being super cautious. I felt like all the agencies and the agents in the real estate industry had like strict protocols, which was good. Um, you know, I feel like those protocols probably saved a lot of lives. Um, and I don't even think we scratched the tip of the iceberg of what we could have done had we leveraged technology. I think everyone nowadays, um, even folks in our community, overvalue like their data and privacy. And it's like, oh, my data and my uh, my secrecy and all this other stuff, like really in the human construct, we're not that important <laughs> and individually, right? Collectively, I believe we are. But, you know, our phones have contact tracing built in. Yeah. And we didn't even leverage that. Like, so because people, oh, I'm not gonna let the phone track me. And if I get sick, whatever. Meanwhile, yeah. it could have told us like, hey, Ray, you caught COVID. You mark the day you catch it in the app. Then it tells you, Sonia, hey, you were in proximity to Ray 12 days ago. Ray caught COVID or someone in your network. It doesn't even have to disclose who you are. Someone in your network, you were you had an exposure. We could have saved umpteen lives. You know, like, I mean, just like, you know, I, I don't know the number thousands. What is what could it have been a, a million lives? I, it's, it's crazy. Um, uh, had we like used contact tracing from the beginning um, when the technology was available to us, both on like, you know, major platform, Android, Apple, 
um, even like disposable phones, I think you could probably enable it if you wanted to. So, you know, that I think that was an L we took, right? But then there was some wins, like, you know, we did at least try to mask up, try to protect each other, try to avoid misinformation. Um, I recently went to the Santa Clarita International Film Festival in, um, in uh, Santa Clarita, which is uh, just north of LA. And it's, um, it's an emerging, emerging um, uh, town where there's a lot of film industry bubbling up and um, a lot of uh, good folks there. Um, one woman, Lisa D'Souza, who's a Deerfield alum, invited me out saying, hey, Stokes Foundation could host a film screening block if you'd like that to happen. Um, what would you like your topic to be? And we surrounded on education, access, and equity. And one of the films was about 500 schools closing in Puerto Rico as a result of the um, environmental catastrophes, but also as a result of political structures that are bringing in paid school management firms to sort of um, leverage the uh, economic resources that are associated to running schools mm -hmm. uh, for profit, right? Um, that uh, film, War Against Our Schools, was really excellent, really beautiful, because it featured the island both at its best and you know at its most challenging points wow. and the people that are persevering there. The other film um, was uh, called um, Clothes Mind about um, the impact of dress codes on black uh, young ladies attending school in the DC area and how they helped change some policy around dress code because it's always, um, or at least historically biased against um, black and brown females whose bodies may take different shape or um, who get stigmatized because of the way uniform or other things they might wanna wear mm. um, fit or fall on, on the human body. And um, these awesome young women like, you know, really like um, took it to DC schools and kind of won and they got featured on like NPR and other uh, forums. And this documentary follows them around. It's, it's, it's really awesome. It's called uh, Clothes Minds. And it's like a play on words. Um, oh. And uh, the last one is that I'll get to as it relates to your work is called Vaccinate Watts. And it features um, a slate of um, awesome individuals who saved a lot of lives um, in the Watts community um, during the pandemic. But one notable person, Dr. Jerry Abraham, is someone who might be a great subject for a future podcast. I'll try to make that introduction. But he's um, done the, you know, media rounds. I believe he's been on like CNN and other forums because during his time out of the hospital, now we talked about a little bit of the crisis he was dealing with on a daily basis, literally having to intubate and then, uh, you know, identify that folks had passed and notify families or put that, put people on that last video call, you know? So this is a man who's, going through that as a first responder and, and, and working with his staff team as a doctor. Wow. Um, and then in his free time was going into the Watts community and trying to get needles in arms, basically pulling cars over. And like in the video, in the movie Vaccinate Watts, the documentary, it's like currently a short, they might try to extrapolate it out to a full length feature documentary because there's so much compelling content. So doc, Dr. Abraham was out there like, 
in the hood, like on the street, like, hey, brah, pull over for a second. Let me talk to you. Are you vaccinated yet? No. Do you, would you consider it? Like, well, nah, nah, I'm not putting that in me. I don't know about that. I don't know anything about that. These guys, people are responding like in the hood. And he's like, listen, I, I'm not just here. Like, I'm a doctor. Like, I, I, I would not lie to you. Um, it's safe. It can save your life. It can save the lives of the people that you love. Please pull over. I, I'll, I'll make it happen. It's painless. And I promise you that nothing bad will befall you in the subsequent days. Mm. You know, you're not going to catch COVID because like he was dispelling all these myths and all this mythology that was circulating, especially in the black community. Mm. So that's what Vaccinate Watts focuses on is a disparity in education access think of the theme of the panel discuss you know the panel and the the, the three films um, relative to medical information like mm -hmm. facts right people are running around it with their own facts <laughs> and like you know sorry you're not entitled to that you're entitled to your own opinions and so um you know he was uh just doing an amazing job there there were other panelists pertinent to the film but i i focus on dr abraham just um you know he's a brilliant black man and then it turns out, as we are talking, that he went to an urban boarding school in Texas, connected to University of North Texas, which has a sister program that's been around at um, Lamar University. So, like, what are the odds of that? Like, I'm out there doing this panel discussion and just trying to not focus on Stokes Foundation too much, but focus on their film. Right. And I'm trying to make them look good, you know, so I'm doing my job because we don't have film content at the film festival this year, maybe next year. And then afterward, like, we're like hugging each other and just like fast friends talking about, you know, he's like, Ray, I'm gonna help you. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna build these programs. And I'm a product of one, like I can speak to it. I understand the language. Um, so at one point in time before, when we were sort of prefacing um, the start of this video call, I think I, I might've said in my life and in my belief system, some things are too incidental to be accidental. And whether you believe in the universal order or fate or whatever, you know, just uh, pure chance or luck, um, I find that, uh, you know, beautiful people are coming out to help me. Even you asking me to, you know, come and be a part of this um, project. Yeah, I can't even just call it a podcast because it's really a chronicling of history and of things pertinent to our people um, that we might not even see the importance of it in our lifetime. And if I, and through my work at Stokes Foundation, I'm able to have any degree of success, it will be interesting because right now, like I'm struggling, I'm trying to make everything work. Um, in fact, if anyone's listening and they wanna check us out, we're at stokesfoundation.org, properly spelled. S-T-O-K-E-S foundation, all one word, dot org. Um, you don't necessarily need to make a gift to make a difference. You know, just tell me you want to learn more so that you can further articulate what we're doing and giving us your brain space um, can make a difference in the life of students who I've already described have an urgent real-time need today. And, you know, I can only really build one program at a time. Like I can only get started somewhere. So right now we're in our dorm acquisition phase and I'm just doing my best. But, you know, your question really made, reminded me not only of my own story, but of Dr. Jerry Abraham's story and this entire experience 
um, for all of our people. And when I say our people, you know, it's funny because I feel like, um, you know, they don't realize it, but in some way, like, you know, poor, like white folk are like, you know, now like the new version of the least and the last, and they don't even realize it. They're, you know, busy following, you know, Donald Trump or whatever they're doing. And I usually try to avoid all the political stuff, but like, to be just totally honest, um, you know, there's nothing that that band has ever done that has anyone else's best interests in mind, except his own. Um, so we used to be a country where um, we valued integrity and we valued the things that I'm trying to like, you know, engender in students and somewhere we've kind of lost some of our direction or some of us have. And as far as what I see in um, communities for people of color, we're being pushed through a lot of tragedy. Um, but we are not daunted. <laughs> we are like, we are still um, becoming leaders. We are building generational wealth. We're building nonprofit organizations. We're rising to lead leadership at Fortune 500 companies and within the construct of America, um, you know, even beyond Barack Obama's impact. So um, that said, I just want to know where the, the folks of integrity are to lead us. Please step forward, regardless of race, creed or color, and just don't just talk about it, like be about it, you know. So I got my corner of the world. Sonia, I think you have your corner. Um, you know, and if we all had that and we cared about someone else besides ourselves, like we'd be in a better place. I think the pandemic may have kicked us in the tail. And we're, I think we're taking things a little bit less for granted. Um, and you know, we know that um, life is very fragile and it's to be appreciated. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because we talked in our pre-conversation how these, this oral history project will be of service to people maybe a hundred years from now and they'll be able to do research and listen to what it was like for everyday folk like us during the pandemic. And I was telling you, I wish that this had been around during the influenza pandemic so we can know what their lives were like. So I, I really appreciate hearing what your life was like. I feel every single person in the world is important in hearing your story. You're a part of the, the fabric of humanity. So I really thank you for your time. And my goal is to get the recordings into archives at the Schomburg and then also the African-American Museum of History and Culture. So, and ultimately to have an event where we can all come together, gather together and talk and process because there's still a lot of unprocessed sadness and just a lot yes. of feeling. And we're still sort of ending the pandemic. So there's still- I mean, I got choked up at least two times you know, just even trying to unpack some of what's there. And I feel like I only scratched, you know, the tip of the iceberg because yeah. of the way conversation flows or like storytelling works inherently. Um, one thing that I, I think would be really valuable, or even if you do this in a sort of a longitudinal format with kids and children who are just having their formative memories now, but yeah. might be able to articulate them as they get a little bit older, yeah. And to hear the voice of some children on the podcast or even um, teens and like, you know, younger adults as, as you move forward. Um, I think if you can get some of them to talk about it closer to 
um, the actual pandemic event. And and I, I, I listen, the the other shoe could drop tomorrow and we could all of a sudden be back in quarantine collectively. So I identify that. But so I'm when I'm referring it to almost as in like a, you know, post pandemic using post pandemic language. Yeah. Uh, I, I identify that we might not be totally out of the water yet, you know, hot water yet, right. but, um, or the next one might be worse, mm-hmm. right? This one seems to have been genetically um, constructed, whether through, um, you know, God's work or through science, but, you know, depending on where you believe its origin lies, um, that such that it didn't target um, military age males and healthy adults, right? It targeted, um, or children. This pandemic didn't target children. Imagine what would have happened to society. Think back to Katrina in New Orleans. Imagine what would have happened to society if this was targeting predominantly people's babies or, or if it was targeting predominantly healthy military age males and females like your average person and it wasn't limited to sort of what people view it as folks with um, risk factors and folks with um, who were of advanced age, right? Like that was like the almost the target genetic of the genetic code. Yeah. COVID. Imagine if it was people's babies. We would have torn each other apart societally. And like there would have been chaos in the streets. So take it with a grain of salt because the next pandemic may be worse, right? And now historically pandemics have usually um, come every like what, whatever it is, hundred years, or like you know, or, or over after a prolonged period of time, but we don't know the variables that could come into play, um, either organically or through human accident or science or whatever else, or nature and evolution, right? Right. So, I just say that we should like sort of be mentally prepared. Um, we've learned a little bit here. We got our butt kicked, which is sometimes healthy for you, and. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I, um, I think that's part of this conversation of, you know, the black experience in, in COVID as well. Um, yeah. Um, I would love to hear um, about your experience if you caught COVID and what that was like. Um, well, yeah, it's great that you asked because um, when the pandemic came through, it was clear and evident to me that the risk factors that they were talking about on TV um, pertain to, to me, even though I'm, you know, only like, you know, I was probably 45, 46, now I'm 47 years old. Um, you know, I have high blood pressure. I'm taking amlodipine, like to manage that medically, as well as trying to improve my diet, which is, you know, like, especially during the pandemic, which was a struggle. Um, and I also have sleep apnea where if I don't use a CPAP machine at night, my brain is simply just not getting enough oxygen. Um, And that can have like long-term effects for me, for my body and for my organs. But um, in general, it's another one of those, you know, risk factors that they would talk about um, relative to COVID. So um, I wound up and I remember standing on the lines and what you had to go through to get vaccinated but my partner Cindy and I wanted to get vaccinated at the earliest possible opportunity when it became available to us. Um, and so I uh, was vaccinated at Bronx Science High School in the Bronx, even though we lived up here because it was the nearest place that I could possibly get 
on a line and wait, like go around the block and around the corner to get vaccinated. Um, in the months that followed, I, you know, vaccinated, double boosted, you know, everything that, you know, was medically advised, especially in light of my risk factors. This past summer, though, you know, pandemic is winding down for everybody. Everyone's running around mask free. Um, we're still masking up for the most part. Um, but uh, my whole household caught COVID, including the baby. Um, the baby processed it quickest, but it was the most painful for us to watch as parents because he was just devastated by what COVID did to his little body. Um, the coughing, the inability to breathe, the fever. Um, and all we wanted to do was comfort him, even though Cindy and I were both sick. Um, Cindy's body processed it within like, uh, you know, three to four days. For me, it was like lingering cough and other things that were like more protruded. Um, and then like four to five days of the worst ailment that I've ever had in my life. So it just gave me this like healthy respect for people who had to be intubated. Like I understood why that could happen. So um, I remember in the pandemic, you couldn't find a pulse oximeter even on Amazon, but we had now in the house as the pandemic had been subsiding, you know, subsiding, we, I had the pulse oximeter. Um, there were times when Cindy put it on my finger and it was pretty low um, or concerning levels. Um, I went to a clinic, not to the ER, where they gave me the monoclonal antibody treatment. And you essentially sign your life away saying that like, hey, whatever happens is on you, bruh. <laughs> but um, I made sure I got that in my body because of my risk factors. And I was not a candidate to receive um, any other of the COVID treatments that exist because of high blood pressure and other factors, the amlodipine I'm taking or whatever. Um, so that monoclonal um, I could almost feeling it going into my body and like, it just really like made it like, it felt like something was happening. Um, but I think it's one of the reasons why I was able to get over COVID within that five days, as opposed to it being anything longer. Um, it might've saved my life. Um, our whole entire household recovered. Um, again, the baby just being the one that was heartbreaking to watch. Um, you know, he was two years old and he's so fragile and it's our job to take care of them. Um, so, yeah, you know, just, again, a healthy respect. Then this winter, um, 2022, um, I was the only one in the house who caught COVID. So I was locked up. Thankful that we didn't live in the one bedroom anymore because we now had, like, the extra room that my middle child stays in when he comes. And I was able to, like, quarantine up there. Um, they would bring me soup and fluids and and, and take care of me, um, both, um, you know, my small child and, and my partner. And, um, you know, I just was trying to get better. Um, the cough was so bad that eventually I lost the ability to talk. And this about with COVID lasted three weeks. Um, so in the middle of trying to train my staff at Stokes Foundation, I couldn't even get on a video conference. I literally just was all work was stopped for me. I, I couldn't sit up at a desk for, for too long. Um, all of the muscles in my abdomen um, and in my some in my back, that muscles I rarely use were pulled as if I had pulled them doing sit-ups or working out or something too hard. And um, the only relief I could get was from like going to sleep with a heating pad and just dreading the very next time when I might cough, which was almost inevitable. 
um, and the cough was just so hard. It's like every time it was just like like damaging or hurting these these muscles and hurting my lungs. Um, so this was a, again three weeks of um, a cough that won't go away and a lot of other symptoms. Um, I was COVID positive for like a portion of that time, but um, the illness um, and then the exacerbation of even what I experienced in the first bout with COVID, which is I think they call COVID fog or COVID brain, where I just, I wasn't feeling as sharp. And even to this day, like I'm doing my best in this interview, but I promise you that I know that there's some lingering effects um, on my body. I can't speak for anyone else's physiology um, from having had three weeks of COVID um, that are still with me. I'm doing my best. I use mnemonic devices to get by as a fundraiser and as a, in leadership, I use my um, mobile phone. Like I write things down. Um, you know, I use sticky notes or whatever. Like I just do my best, but, um, but I have this healthy respect for the, you know, the types of things that we can face as far as what feels like a flu or that other people might make fun of or try to dismiss. I just understand what those folks went through. I had to take a second monoclonal treatment, go into the ER. Um, they gave me fluids and I was just trying to stay alive. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, honestly, trying to remember all the reasons um, that I have to live, you know, um, unresolved uh, and estrangement with my daughter, you know, like everything. So um, just know that uh, I'm appreciative of you giving me the forum to talk about a little bit, even though it, it does generate some emotion on my part. Um, I would say that I am um, literally afraid of catching it a third time. Um, and I'm not afraid of too many things. I described my upbringing, you know, with my mother um, and being from the Bronx, like you're sort of like innately resilient. And so, you know, I don't fear death. Um, I fear dying with my work unresolved. And with relationships that are, you know, like up in the air or unresolved. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when it's my time, I will be gone from here. But while I'm here, um, I'm trying to do the work, you know. And uh, anyway, this podcast is part of it. Um, thank you for, you know, taking the time to listen and also to like asking the questions that um, remind me of my experience with COVID um, as someone who identifies as a, a black or African-American male. Thank you, Ray. Thank you so much. Oh, no, you're welcome. It's been great. And um, I just you know, wish you luck with the project. If other folks come to mind or good relationships, I'll try to flag those individuals um, for you. Um, I plan to support on all of my social networks. So when it when it does release, um, I know I listen on Spotify. Other people may use different platforms, um, but I'll try to um, push out as many links as I can. Um, because believe it or not, just you're giving me some a platform to tell my story and to talk about Stokes Foundation. Um, is much appreciated. I can't thank you enough. Um, and I'll put a link to your foundation in the podcast. Also, thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation on this episode of 
Black America and COVID, an oral history project. If you enjoyed the episode, then please give it five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. The more five stars the podcast has, the more visible it is, the more access I have to people who would like to share their story living, working, and or going to school during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you are a Black American and you would like to share your experience with me, then email me at soniakilabrew at gmail.com. The emails in the show notes of the podcast or direct message me through my Instagram account, Black America and COVID, all one word, all lowercase. If you are a non-Black American and you would like to memorialize the life of a Black American sadly lost during the COVID-19 pandemic, then email me as well. This episode was written, produced, and audio engineered by me, Sonia Jean Killebrew, podcast host and executive producer. Thanks for listening to my oral history project, Black America and COVID.